In 2018, I watched Beyonce headline Coachella from my apartment in Brooklyn. I remember watching her come down the runway with her crown and cape, making her way to the stage. There was something incredibly powerful about watching all those beautiful people in uniform and the sound of the marching band and the majorette dancers. It's an energy that you can only get from historically black colleges and universities and our iconic bands. She had the resources, the stature, and the vision. She gave us a show. And, true to form, Beyonce never half-steps on anything. Starting performance with that, you know, strut with that entire ensemble, and then, you know, she rising from the, the bleachers at the top, and you see the band, and then she's wearing her yellow hoodie, Bay Delta Kappa hoodie with the Louboutin boots. I mean, it was, it was a moment that I was like, okay. Meet Darnell Jamal Lisby. I'm a fashion historian and currently the assistant curator for the Cleveland Museum of Art with the focus of organizing and conceptualizing fashion exhibitions. If Beyonce wasn't Beyonce, she would be, you know, a majorette dancer. And this was Beyonce <laughs> living out her probably dreams that she always wanted to do. You know, the entire moment mixed with what she was wearing just exuded everything that we all knew and felt and loved about Beyonce. And for her to do that, I think, really kind of sent just a wonderful kind of warm sentiment that a lot of people have been dying to to, to give out, uh, to show that there's such a beauty within the Black community regarding the HBCU culture. Beyonce's use of Greek lettering is important to call out as well. Greek life on HBCU campuses has a legacy of celebrating and honoring Black culture. These fraternities and sororities are known as the Divine Nine. It's significant because any of the Divine Nine, like just all of them, they are integral to the Black community. When you talk about fraternity and sorority with non-Black people, particularly white people, for instance, or even just anybody outside of the Black community, the thought is what American pie, right? Like, that's their idea of a fraternity and sorority. You know, just these frat houses that they do beer pong and they just act completely stupid. And for me, my relationship to a fraternity is Martin Luther King was an alpha. Thurgood Marshall was an alpha. When I think about the the Alpha, uh, Alpha Kappa Alpha uh, sorority, you know, obviously I think Kamala Harris. You think like these fraternities and sororities are sacred to us because they're the individuals that are really also on the front lines in different ways, in philanthropic ways, in professional ways that really build the community to help us create some kind of substantial foundation. Beyonce wanted to honor this tradition of excellence and philanthropy. By creating her own sorority, she was paying homage to the Divine Nine. The bright yellow and hot pink uniforms were designed by the European luxury brand Balmain under the creative direction of Olivier Roosting. And you might remember from the live album of Homecoming when Beyonce pauses to shout out someone in the audience who had replicated her outfit. Together, Beyoncé and Roosting brought a fresh regality to a look that was uniquely Black. Close to half a million people tuned into the live stream from Coachella that weekend just to watch her. A pre-recorded message from DJ Khaled christened the performance, Be Cella. New name alert, Be 
Beachella was a tour de force of black artistry. And at its center was Beyonce in that now iconic hoodie and denim shorts, reminding the world of a look, an energy, and a culture that continues to shape us today. Most historically black colleges and universities were founded after the Civil War in the southern United States. These institutions were founded with the mission of educating black Americans. In this episode, we're going to look at what happens when blackness is presented to the world through HBCU campus style to challenge narrow understandings of black people. Beyonce intentionally put HBCU culture front and center. We're going to look at two other key moments where this happened. The sitcom A Different World that first aired in 1987 and the World's Fair of 1900. We'll explore their iconic styles and the depth of what those clothes signified. We'll also hear how respectability has played a role in the way students choose to represent themselves. I'm Kimberly Jenkins. You're listening to The Invisible Seam, where we open up the archive of American fashion and celebrate its Black contributions. This is episode four, the best, the brightest, the dressed. Let's talk about a television show centered around an HBCU. A Different World spans six seasons, exploring the lives of students coming of age on the fictitious HBCU campus, Hillman College. The show represented a cast of diverse characters that young viewers could relate to. Here's Darnell Jamal Lisby again. You know, it was genius, I think, the way that they showed the spectrum of Blackness, right? Like, not all of us grew up in good times. Not all of us grew up in that good times kind of the ghetto you know, environment, some people like Whitley Gilbert had, you know, parents had a lot of money and, you know, provided for her. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who could survive without a mall? Or understanding what Dwayne Wayne, like him coming from Brooklyn and, you know, a little more, even though his parents were very hardworking people, you know, they weren't necessarily wealthy, but they were middle-class people. And he had more of association to the streets. And you see that evolution in him. Say, bro, I know what it's like to grow up in a rough environment. I mean, but just because things are rough doesn't mean we have to be victims of the ghetto. Hey, strong brothers like you need to build up the community, not destroy it. I was a Black girl who grew up in an affluent, all-white neighborhood in Texas. It involved a great deal of code switching and just emotional exhaustion and really trying to figure out who and what I was. We drove to a black church about 30 minutes away on Sundays. But aside from that, I was pretty divorced from black culture. Being in this neighborhood was important to my family. The goal was upward mobility. And I had a classmate in high school whose family really represented black excellence to me. So when it came time to decide on colleges to apply for, she told me about an HBCU in Virginia called Hampton University. And so I applied and I got in and I was like, let's do this. 
When I stepped foot on campus, it was mind-blowing. I went from such a bubble and just not fully understanding who and what I was and what black culture outside of church on Sundays and watching TV and music videos, what blackness was, to seeing this whole panoply of black culture. I remember attending orientation and looking at the student body and just being in awe of the diversity. There were the people who were into hip hop style. Then you had the people who were really into preppy style. There were the engineering and science nerds, the sports jocks, then the fly girls over here. And then the kind of girls who were going through a whole Erica Badu phase. Well, I fell into that one. It was the neo-soul movement and I found my tribe. I was writing poetry, going to poetry slams. We were the conscious crew. Conscious was the word that we used before woke. I saw people from all across the diaspora, students from the continent, students from the Caribbean, students from the East Coast, the West Coast, the South, all of them with their own dialect and their own style and approach and attitude. And so it was just so exciting. It gave me a whole new respect for what Black culture is, a mosaic. So my name is Ceci, and my official title is Ceci. Some people call me the goat. <laughs> no, just Ceci, costume designer. Ceci was the costume designer for a different world. Long before I had my HBCU experience, I watched the cast of A Different World navigate college life. Ceci has worked as a costume designer on television shows like Sister, Sister, Living Single, Dear White People, and most recently, a remake of The Wonder Years. She got her start working on print advertisements, then worked on music videos and plays, movies, and eventually television. Ceci takes various things into consideration when she's designing looks. So that's going to be with colors. That's going to be with textures. That's going to be with some flair and panache. That's going to be with some style that maybe it's a scarf, it's a flurry, it's a, it's, it's a layered Chanel pearls and golds. Maybe it's a little bit over the top. Maybe it's bolder. Maybe it's a color combination choice that is not necessarily um, something that you, that's unique, that you don't necessarily see every day, but something that is unique to an African-American woman. So the approach for Whitley is, okay, so yes, she's got on a dress, but all right, so maybe we need to add a chain belt. Maybe she needs now some pearls. And I just keep adding layers. Oh, she needs a hat. How about, you know, a vest to that? And just until, it's like painting a picture. Until that picture is complete and that whole look, I can, you can feel it. You can hear her speaking out of this costume. I think that what Ceci did was as Whitley evolved, so did her style. That's Jasmine Guy. She played the role of Whitley on A Different World. Whitley started off as a spoiled student from the South, but her character evolved over the seasons as Whitley grew up. She was very strict and kind of pent up in the beginning. And as she became more free, as she fell in love, as she grew up and realized, you know, that the world she grew up in wasn't the only world. I thought her, her style changed as well. Jasmine told me how much she enjoyed working on the show A Different World and how Ceci's costumes helped her embody her character. It showed how different we are 
as a people. Before then, it was like black was a genre. And I, I, I'm like, it's not a genre. I mean, we still have our own truths. And a lot of times as an actor, you, you'll be hired as a token in a white company. And with that show, we were able to show upper class, middle class, blue collar, struggle, scholarships. People came from different places. And I, I love that about the show. And I think, you know, Ceci had uh, the challenge of dressing the characters to be who they were. You know, I, I feel like when I put on the, my costume for Whitley, it made me more her. Ceci used the characters' wardrobes to add to their personality over the seasons of a different world. Whitley was a Southern belle. And I thought, okay, she's a Southern belle, but she's a Black woman. So how do I define that and make that even more crystal clear that she's not a blonde Southern belle, but she's a Black Southern belle? Another iconic uh, character with an iconic object that they would wear, the flip glasses. Um, I knew you were going to say <laughs> I that. I wanted you, because we have to give some attention to the men. Um, can you take us through shaping Dwayne Wayne's look? I did not like the flip glasses. And, you know, I could kind of take them or leave them. I thought at the time that they were so corny. I thought, oh, my God, what the hell? And Kadeem took me to the side. He said, Sassy, I beg of you, please, please let me wear some regular glasses. I can't stand these anymore. Please. So there was a lot of, of uh, lobbying and a lot of conversation. Because at the at second season, you know, that was fine for first season. By second season, Dwayne started maturing. He started being more polished. He, you know, started getting into the job. And he, we wanted to see a progression. And it would have been fine to, to keep them, you know, maybe the another six season. But I just felt like it's time to, for me, to transition Dwayne away from the, you know, goofballish kind of a look to something a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more sexy black man, you know. And I think that was what I, how I wanted to see him and how he wanted to see himself. Sassy spoke to me about the evolution of another character on A Different World, Winifred Freddie Brooks, played by actor Cree Summer. As an undergrad, Freddie was a student activist but then in season six, she returned to campus to attend law school. And then Freddie started wearing suits to class. It is clothes. Are you serious? Yes, I am, and I plan to be taken seriously. Freddie, you're buying into the system. And you used to be about something. I am about something. I am about studying this system, understanding it so I can change it. I'm her secret weapon, little sister. So if and when you finally decide to walk some of this talk and march, then I will be the one making sure you don't get arrested, oh militant one. Mm. Mm. Goodbye, Tracy Chapman. Hello, I died a million and ten deaths, and so did Cree. She was like, wait, what? And wanted her to press her hair. That was like a huge thing also. And I'm sure that that's a point of contention, you know, even now. Like, well, you know, now that we're embracing our, our natural hair, you know, back then, that was kind of seen, I guess, as just conforming. The thing that I'm most proud of with that show and every show that I work on is being able to create these identities that don't cross-pollinate. 
Willie would not wear what what Pre would wear and or what Jalisa would wear. They all have their very distinct looks. You know, Charnel Brown had her distinct look. And I think that that's so important because it supports the vision of the writer and the intention of where they're going with these characters. If you turn your your volume on mute, you should be able to glean something about these people and who they are. The looks that Sassy created with her work on A Different World and the evolution of Whitley, the Jasmine portrayed, helped viewers like myself see ourselves in new ways. They helped us realize what our characters could be. HBCUs, since their inception, have been a place to pursue higher education and strive towards excellence. They've also been a place to grow into yourself, to discover who you are and who you want to be, and how what you wear can show that to the world. It's not surprising that graduates of HBCUs also have so much pride in their alma maters. You can see an example of this in the popular brand African American College Alliance. The label sells leisure wear sporting the names of different HBCUs. Their box logo and stylized lettering was instantly recognizable in music videos and shows like A Different World. I was curious to hear from students at HBCUs today. So we went to the Atlanta University Center, the home of Morehouse, Spelman, and Clark Atlanta. We spoke to students about what they choose to wear and how they present themselves. Some were even directly inspired to attend HBCUs because of a different world. Everything about that show, everyone about that show, from Whitley to Freddie and her free spirit to self, from Dwayne Wayne to Ron, and just, I mean, everything about the show. Sinbad, when he was on there, Jaleesa as the older person, which I'm kind of one of the older people like Jaleesa on campus. And um, that's a show that really inspired you to go to an HBCU. I would describe my sense of fashion style as authentically me. I would say, um... I'm very diverse when it comes to what I like to wear in the mornings, but it all really depends on patterns, colors, textures, and whatever theme I'm feeling that day. We're very, like, diverse when it comes to, like, fashion. Like, if you walk around, like, you see everybody kind of being themselves, like, coming to fashion and, like, making themselves known just by them putting on some clothes. I would describe my style as, like, yeah, I, I feel like it's like kind of like a skate, like skater style, but it's more like, I don't know. I kind of think like when I get dressed, I'm like, damn, bro, I really dressing like how my mom used to dress me in like elementary school, like khakis, polo shirt, the shoes. But I don't know. I just rock with it still. I will say that my style has evolved over the course of the few months, but as of now, it's very um, androgynous, minimalist-esque and um, leather overcoats and like high-waisted pants and turtlenecks. Now, I'm going to take you back to the late 1800s and early 1900s because A Different World wasn't the first time HBCUs were telling a diverse story about Blackness and countering misconceptions. I want to tell you about how W.E.B. Du Bois put Black culture and HBCU culture on display for the world to see. It was the turn of the century, and France invited countries from around the world to participate in the Exposition Universelle, 
a grand exposition for nations to show off their cultural and technological advancements. Dozens of countries constructed national pavilions. The Eiffel Tower was painted yellow. One of the first talking pictures was screened. It was a huge deal. W.E.B. Du Bois was in Paris for the fair. The American sociologist, historian, and civil rights activist was the first African-American to earn a doctorate at Harvard. A few years prior to the fair, Du Bois became a professor at Atlanta University, one of the country's first HBCUs. In uh, 1897, I went to Atlanta University and stayed there 13 years, making a systematic study of the American Negro. It's fair to say that for the next 25 years, there wasn't a book published on the Negro problem that didn't have to depend upon what we were doing at Atlanta University. It was the first study of the sort. Ours was the first institution in the United States, white or black, that had any course on the history of the American Negro or on Negro history in general. He really was focused on the idea of showing kind of the best and brightest of Black culture. And so he had these photographs taken and put on display in Paris that showed the beauty, the sophistication, the elegance of Black people. That's Elizabeth Way. She's an associate curator of costume at the Museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology. I have known Elizabeth for years, watching her curate exhibitions and publish articles and books on the history of what we wear. She's also been a key figure in excavating the hidden histories behind Black dressmakers and designers. A lot of the stories that came to Europe from the United States were about all the negative aspects of being Black in America. He didn't want that to be the only narrative that the world saw about Black people. Du Bois traveled by steamship from America to Paris to present what he called the Exhibit of American Negroes. He displayed official patents held by African Americans alongside graphs and charts showing their economic and social progress. He also showcased nearly 400 photographs of African Americans at the turn of the 20th century. The idea was to challenge the racist stereotypes and caricatures that existed during that time. One photo shows a small group of young women seated on the steps of Atlanta University. The women are dressed similarly to what many young, white, educated American women were wearing at the time. People got dressed up to go out of the house. There was no, like, leisure wear. There was sportswear specifically for sports, but these women are dressed, uh, dressed to be fashionable. And this was a European style, but at this time, we really see more and more American style an idea about practicality, an idea about kind of a robust lifestyle asserting itself in women's fashion. So we see these women with um, separates. Separates seem like such a no-brainer to us today, but that was not always the case. For example, there's a woman sitting here with this beautiful white blouse with these puffed sleeves, which is very much in fashion in the late 19th century, um, turn of the century, and then this skirt. So this idea that you could have a shirt and a skirt and, you know, wear it with multiple outfits and kind of mix and match, this was something that was pretty new in women's wear. What Elizabeth is pointing out here is crucial. This group of ambitious, young Black women were not only advancing social representation for African Americans, they were leading us into a new era of fashion that was more liberating. This was a pretty American idea that clothing for women should be a little bit more practical, should fit a more active lifestyle. These clothes were much, much more practical. 
than the clothing that came before. And these were women who were in class, who were out during the day, who were concentrating um, on their studies and, you know, their futures. And so practical clothing was something that they embraced, even though it was quite fashionable. There were many Black people at that time who were doing pretty well for themselves. Du Bois felt that the dominant narratives and images of Black people were limiting and reductive. He needed to do something to completely turn it over on its head. One of the things that Du Bois is doing, I think, in that exhibition is really trying to present a kind of a visual portrait, right, of African-American achievement and ambition. So he's really, really understanding the relationship of aesthetics, right, to aesthetics and visuality, to the way that people think about African-American identity and, um, and possibility. My name is Monica Miller, and I'm a professor of English and Africana Studies at Barnard College, Columbia University. And I am a cultural historian of Black fashion and dress cultures. With these photographs, he's saying to the world, no, no, we're doing well for ourselves. We're well-dressed, we're well-read, we're going to school, we have homes, and we're engaging in politics. One of the things that he's doing is trying to, again, visualize this ambition, visualize a certain amount of, of what's already been achieved in the Black community in terms of education, in terms of, quote-unquote, refinement, in terms of a certain kind of class aspiration or status. Like He's trying to show that because he knows that people don't believe it or um, that they need proof of it, right, in order to think about Black people as fit for citizenship, fit for, you know, inclusion into American and sort of more global conceptions of society. The photographs were wide-ranging. A family of five seated in the grass, as if on a picnic, immaculately dressed in dark dresses with bright tops and three-piece suits. A piano teacher in a tuxedo with a handlebar mustache. People in white smocks practicing dentistry. Black scientists peering into microscopes. A portrait of a wide-eyed newborn draped in an oversized white dress lined with lace. This was only 35 years after the end of the Civil War. The black and white photographs that Du Bois displayed in Paris represent the resilience, dignity, and beauty of a people only recently enslaved. By including this kind of visual material, he's also participating and, I think, propagating, right, a conversation about Black respectability politics, about respectability both with an intra-community conversation about respectability as well as an intra-racial, I think, conversation about that. And, you know, the sentiment still lingers around us today. In the Black community, it remains a sensitive topic about how we're represented. I, myself, grew up with this with parents who had to deal with the politics of status anxiety, concerns about how we were presented and how we were regarded in society. On my mother's side, they were very much concerned with this. Issues like the shade of their skin and the texture of their hair, my Uncle Bill, my mother's cousin, was a proud Tuskegee Airman in the 1930s. Then he went on to become a successful doctor. And so, for my mother's family growing up in Michigan, they were very much about saying, no, no, we're not struggling. We do okay for ourselves. We go to the lake to relax, and we enjoy leisurely activities. 
we go to church on Sundays, and we're on top of our bills. Growing up under that and having a mother who was very conscious about how I dressed myself, that I was sitting up straight, how I was speaking, what kind of music I was listening to, what books I was reading, it all spoke to this anxiety about positive representation and what other people were thinking of us. And more than 100 years ago, HBCUs were at the center of this negotiation. Du Bois's photos were like a flag planted in the ground. There's a way in which the, there starts to become a kind of national conversation about, so, so what's happening on HBCU campuses? Like, how are these students sort of presenting themselves as the next series of Black leaders, like the next professional class? Monica has spent time researching the way HBCU campus fashion was reported on in the press. Magazines like The Crisis, which was Du Bois's own publication, and Ebony had been covering student life all along. But you also started to see the occasional photo shoot from Life magazine at Howard University or Spelman College. I mean, how is, how is this looking, right? So there's really, really interesting kind of visual history there. Right, because one of the things that I see happening in those photographs is a question about self-presentation. Who is it for? Who's the audience for these, I mean, for these photographs, right? They're clearly, I mean, some of the fashion is very close to kind of mainstream fashion that you could see at Princeton or Harvard or a lot of other places, but often with a kind of very specific black signature, right? I'm thinking of a photograph that I've written about, which is two uh, young black men at Howard dressed in what seems to be like a kind of, you know, khaki pant and um, letter sweater combination. But they're leaning up against a lamppost and sort of like looking at each other with like smiles on their faces. And they're wearing these kind of like jaunty caps, right? I mean, so it's this real, I mean, it's this really kind of beautiful photograph on the one hand of two black men who seem to be friends Right. And sort of, you know, enjoying each other's like, you know, kind of like style and disposition. And yet the photograph also seems to kind of like be a wink to something. Right. And I always think about the look on their faces like, what are they winking at? Right. I mean, I mean, it's like, what are they? Is the wink sort of like, oh, so you think about black men this way and we're not actually like that? Is the wink to like you think about black people on, or you don't think about Black people on college campuses, but we're here, you know, we're doing well, we're preparing ourselves for the future. Or it's like, we don't really wear these clothes, but we're doing it for this photograph. There's a knowingness sometimes about how they're being portrayed, about how they want to be portrayed, about the difficulty of bringing those two things closer together. And therefore, there's a sort of like irony or wit, I think, sometimes in the visual record. So whether it's Du Bois in 1900, Beyonce at Coachella, or Ceci styling the characters of a different world, HBCUs are central to an understanding of the mosaic of Black culture and fashion. These are just a few stories about what happens when you put culture on a stage and people are able to internalize it. HBCUs have gotten their glow on the world stage through these distinct moments. In effect, these times of cultural celebration have expanded beyond its original purpose, opening up the conversation and leading to a broader appreciation. There's also the wink and knowingness Monica Miller was talking to us about within Black culture. There's a story about how Black people are portrayed versus how we want to be portrayed. 
A lot of black designers and stylists I talk to speak about the pressure to be put in a box, a streetwear box, or an urban box. Well, with this podcast, I want to show how Black people have found ways to express freedom and creativity, even in systems of oppression. In our next episode, we're talking about how that happens today, tomorrow, and all the days after in the fashion industry. What's the future of fashion? What new approaches and opportunities are Black designers and creative directors carving out for themselves? And how sometimes what we wear is a coping mechanism. We're creating this fantasy for ourselves to get through life and to create a certain type of armor. I don't think we'll ever win a fight if we go straight to the top and like, this is what, no, we need to make sure that we are looking at what's happening at the lower levels because those people will become the next people and that's in charge and then they will have the power to hire a certain type of way or do things a certain type of way. While you're waiting for the next episode, you can check out resources that dive into the topics we talked about here and more. Find this episode syllabus right below the episode description, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Like I tell my fashion students, you have to know your history to understand the present and shape the future. The Invisible Seam is an original podcast created in partnership with the Fashion and Race Database, Tommy Hilfiger's People's Place Program, and Pineapple Street Studios. I founded the Fashion and Race Database in 2017 to center and amplify the voices of people who've been racialized and marginalized in fashion. Our work, like this podcast, focuses on illuminating underexamined histories and addressing racism throughout the fashion system. I'm grateful to the Tommy Hilfiger People's Place Program for their support of this project. The People's Place Program exists to advance and support underrepresented communities in fashion and beyond. They've made this show possible. My co-visionaries are Randy Cousin, SVP Product Concepts and People's Place Program, and Dominique Baycoat, Manager, Earned Media Communications and People's Place Program. And from Pineapple Street Studios, our executive producers for The Invisible Seam are J.N. Barry, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Hemia Freeman is our production coordinator, and Yinka Rickford-Engwin is our associate producer. The Invisible Scene is produced by Stephen Key, Sophia Steinert-Evoy, and me, Kimberly Jenkins. Our editor is Aaron Edwards. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. We are engineered to perfection, or very close to it, by Davey Sumner. Original music by Oaktown Soul, and additional tunes from Epidemic Sound. Terry Agins, Shamira Covington, Kimberly Drew, Nick Nelson, and Miko Underwood reviewed episodes as part of our advisory committee. Thanks for sharing your expertise and perspective and giving thoughtful notes. Legal services for Pineapple Street Studios by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers and Katie Ali Mohammadi at Donaldson Caliph Perez. Fact-checking by Will Tavlin. Our show art was designed by Kurt Courtney and Lauren Vieira at Cadence 13. Additional materials by Netflix, 
NBC, and Folkway Records. Special thanks to Sharon Bardalis, Emerald O'Brien, Mara Davis, and Ken Maiden. Thanks for listening. <laughs>